turn to Romans chapter 10. We have made it to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. It only took us 104 messages to get here, but we are in Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. And in order to set that in our attention, let me, let me just read that. Romans 10 verses 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but... Not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the goal or the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. I was on my first missions trip in Australia as a first year seminary student. I've shared with you some of this, uh, story, this story before because it's so, it was one of the most traumatic moments of my life. I was in Australia, uh, my first missions trip, my first opportunity to be overseas. I think it was 1988 and was supposed to teach at this youth conference and um, the first day after we got there. Well, I got there. I was taken over to some hosts. Uh, love, just a sweet couple who took me in for the week. And we talked briefly. Had some tea. Had some biscuits. Which are not biscuits. They're cookies. But anyway, that's another, another sermon. Uh, we had some tea and biscuits and um, went to bed. Well, I had never experienced jet lag before, so about 3 o'clock in the morning, I was wide awake. 4 o'clock, wide awake. About 5 o'clock, I decided, this is ridiculous. I don't have to be anywhere till 9. I'm going to get up and, and I have my things with me, my, my shoes and some clothes. I'm going to go running. So I was going to go out and go run. It was about dawn at the time. And so I, I took a run, and, and, and the idea was, and I still do this this day, I want to run for 20 minutes out and see if I can make it back in 19. Makes you go really slow in the beginning. But anyway, I just wanted to have a little competition. So I went 20 minutes out, turned around. It's getting more light, more bright. And I'm running back toward my host home. And it dawned on me after I got about 18, 19, 20, 25, 30 minutes back that, that I didn't know what their house looked like. And I didn't know their last name. And didn't have their phone number. And I'm in Australia, running very hard to get somewhere that I can't articulate. And over the next couple hours, I was running up and down streets, back and forth, just hoping someone might notice me, you know, and, and seem that I was lost. And I was woefully lost. This is like now getting, you know, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. I'm supposed to be at this conference at 9, 9 o'clock. And I am, I'm just, what do you do? I mean, even if you go to the police, can you take me home? Where's that? I don't know. It was just horrific. Well, finally, I was running on the left side of the road because they drive on the opposite side, obviously. And, and I hear, Ooh. This policeman pulls up beside me. He says, is your name Rick? 
Yes, it is. He said, oh, they'll be looking for you, mate. <laughs> and he took me to, to, I missed it. I was about the same area, two streets over. All those houses look the same, by the way, I think. At least that's my justification. And I made it to the conference finally. But I was running hard that whole time. I mean, I was going somewhere, but I didn't know where. Have you ever been passionately convinced you were doing something right but been proven to be wrong? For example, taking a shortcut and getting lost. Looking for something where you're convinced it is only to find out that it's somewhere else because your wife typically finds it. One of the questions, we all have questions for God when we get to heaven. My wife's first question is, God, why did you give husbands, why did you give men eyes? Because they never use them. How about something like this? Getting mixed up going north and south? Have you been totally, totally turned around? I broke off a gas valve in Los Angeles because it was the gas valve that I was turning on was underneath in this gas grill. It was an outdoor grill underneath and I was turning it and lefty, loosey, righty, tidy are opposite when you're upside down. And I just was cranking really hard and snapped it. But I was sure I was doing what was right. Passionate about it. Cranking on that thing. The point is this. Sincerity and personal belief do not change reality if you're wrong. You can be sincerely wrong and still be wrong. Well, here in Romans 10, we meet up with this principle on a spiritual level regarding Israel. They had a passion and they had a zeal for God, but it did not match the biblical requirements in their own scriptures and the law for righteousness and approving, being approved by God. They were passionate and zealous, but they were wrong. And their zealousness and their passion did not make up in God's mind for their error. Let's orient ourselves a little bit into this passage as you drop into, into chapter 10. It's been a chapter and a half of Paul describing and expounding and explaining and expositing Old Testament texts regarding God's election and God's sovereignty, God's predestination, God's choice in eternity past about the salvation of everyone who believes and specifically in Israel. Remember, not all Israel is Israel. There is a remnant that's really truly Israel. And this talks about Israel's unbelief. Now why would Israel's unbelief have to do with us in any way and in any sense? Well, a lot for a few reasons. First of all, you have a pretty thick book you're holding there called the Bible, right? It has the New Testament and it has the Old Testament. And we say that those first 39 books are the Word of God, right? If those first 39 books are the word of God, then they matter in some way to us as Christians. What do you do with those through? How, how do we believe the scripture and the, the regulations and the commandments of the law and being obedient to the law? How does that relate to us? Not only that though, the Jews who had misunderstood how to obey the law and the nature of the law, the intent of the law had principles at work in their thinking that are the exact identical principles in the mind of every single unbeliever, Jewish or not. 
Now this is going to help us understand the plight of the Jews in Romans 10 and also the spiritual problems that reside in every man. So we're going to work through this and I need to give you a little heads up right now. Romans 10 and Romans 11 are incredibly and purposefully repetitive. It's like Paul makes a point and then he supports it and he says, did you get it? And then he supports it more, says you do understand it and then he supports it again over and over and over. So over the next few weeks, if you feel like, man, Pastor Rick's, I think he's getting old because he just said that last week. That's because Paul said that last passage. So just know that he is purposefully being repetitive, which means that the Holy Spirit intends for us to circle this airport and understand the, the tarmac very, very clearly as we're landing. This begins talking about Israel's failure to believe. This great nation that was given the choice of God, made the choice of God, refused to believe the Messiah. How do we understand that? Especially if God elects. Now you think, if God predestines and elects, that if he was going to predestine and elect anyone, he would predestine and elect every son of Abraham, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the purpose? And yet, not all of Israel, ethnic Israel, is true, spiritual, faith-filled Israel. How do we understand that? Well, let's break these, two, these four verses down into two failures that caused Israel's spiritual downfall. This is important because these failures have a lot to do with every unbeliever and why they don't believe. Two failures that caused Israel's spiritual downfall. The first is in verses 1 and 2. They possessed zeal without knowledge. They possessed passion or zeal without knowledge. Verse 1. Brethren. Now this brethren functions as two um, uh, per, has two purposes. First of all, he's talking about brethren as the church. But specifically, he's saying brethren who are probably... Jewish who had believed, and that'll make sense in a moment. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is for their salvation. My heart's desire. We've already seen this. If you go back to over, over to um, chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart over my unsaved Jewish friends. My heart's desire Eudokia is the Greek word. It means the greatest thing that pleases me. My, my greatest desire. The thing I want most. You could translate it that. Translate it that way. What, what my heart wants most. What my desires are at their apex. Is joined with. Look at my prayer. There's a great insight there. That Paul's prayers. Reflected his desires. Which means his desires were godly. It's hard to pray about ungodly things, isn't it? His prayers and his heart's desire were one and the same. My prayer to God for them. Stop right there. Who is the them? Well, when you see a, a word like that, you have to look for what's called the, the nearest antecedent. Remember that from English? What does it refer to? Well, let's go back up in the context and see who the them are. Verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, he's been talking about the Jews um, for most of the chapter, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness 
attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And he says specifically, not by the law, by faith, by believing. But Israel, unlike these Gentiles who found themselves to be righteous because of Christ and their faith in Jesus, but Israel differently, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They didn't arrive. When you pursue obedience as a means of pleasing God, that means there is a state, a status, a position at which you look back and say, I have arrived. They didn't arrive ever. Why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but through works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is Christ himself. Behold, it is written, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer for them. Who's the them? It's the Jews who had stumbled over the stumbling block of Christ who had made an initial view at Jesus, the Nazarene, and said, no, he's not the Messiah we expect. And they rejected him. Now, Romans 9, and actually half of Romans 8, and going into Romans 9, as, as you remember, we spent a lot of months there predominantly speaks of God's choice, God's choosing some for salvation. And the reason that's so important is it follows Romans 6 and 7, which talk about our, our sinfulness. No man in and of himself, no woman in and of himself would ever choose to deny self and sin and see that Jesus is more valuable without the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts to turn on the light, open our eyes, unplug our ears to understand that. This is interesting, and we need to talk about this theologically, because after hearing Paul's theological treatment of God's sovereignty and salvation in Romans 8 and Romans 9, you could be really tempted to leave salvation completely at the disposition of God. You could become a, a fatalist, a hyper-Calvinist, a Calvinazi, as some people call them. However, if anyone ever doubted whether God's sovereign election in salvation was in any way beyond involvement with human responsibility, with human activity, Romans 10.1 will delete such doubt. After Paul has said over and over, things like this, look at Romans 8, go back for a second, chapter and a half. Romans 8 verse 29, for whom he foreknew, wow, there's a big predestination word, from whom he foreknew, he also predestined, another big word, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he, he justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Look over at chapter 9. I mean, it's, it gets... More the volume is turned up louder and louder in God's sovereignty throughout this, this chapter. Um, he chooses one son, a younger son, over the older son twice. <laughs> Verse 13, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. Verse 18, God has mercy on whom he desires. 
And he hardens whom he desires. Absolute sovereignty. You would conclude logically that Paul would say after such a discussion... So, God will choose who he chooses, and I'm going to leave that up to him. Let's talk about something that we can deal with, with obedience and morality. Yet he concludes that whole discussion in verse 1 of chapter 10. My heart's desire, my prayer to God, for them is for their salvation. Paul's understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation motivated him to pray for those he knew didn't know Christ to know Christ. It didn't conflict with it. The great instructor of God's sovereignty and salvation here goes to God in prayer for the salvation of his Jewish friends. Now think about this for a moment. This is remarkable. The fact that Paul knows that God has settled in eternity past... The election of those who would believe did not deter him from asking God to save those he knew. Paul does not pray here, God save the elect. He doesn't pray here, God show me who the elect are so that I can tell them the gospel. He has a broken heart, a bleeding spiritual heart for his kinsmen who have rejected the Savior. And it leads him to beg God. Look at what it says clearly. For their salvation. This is interesting. Because he knows only God can save. But he doesn't leave it up to a fatalistic determinism. That if God has not elected them. Then he shouldn't pray. Do you see the, the both and in this passage? Paul does not try to explain. He doesn't try to resolve the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as most theologians and you and I try to. Instead, he prays for their salvation. Now just as a, an aside here, are, are, there, are there people for whom you are praying that they would come to Christ? Are there people who you've prayed for once, twice, weeks, Months, years, decades, a lifetime. If God is sovereign in salvation, he doesn't ask us to go back and un, unscramble, unwind our own understanding of eternity past. He says, by example here, you pray for their salvation and don't stop. This doesn't seem to be a, a prayer that Paul prayed one time and then just let it go. My prayer for them. That means it's on my heart. Something you pray for regularly and over and over. Ken Boa writes this. There was nothing in Paul's doctrine of sovereignty, election, or predestination that could not and should not be touched by prayer. End quote. That's important for us. So important after studying the sovereignty of God and salvation for months and months in Romans 8 and 9. For us to land in Romans 10 and say the conclusion, the practical application is not to understand it all. But to pray for those we love that they would come to Christ. You say, but that doesn't make sense. What if God already has it figured out? You think Paul understood that? The one who had just taught us this with no footnotes, no explanation, no appendices at the end of the Bible. And yet he concludes by saying... My heart's desire is for their salvation and so I pray for them. Do not, I would beg you, do not ever, ever let your doctrine of God's sovereignty 
motivate you to say, well, if they're elect, they'll get saved, and if not, that's up to God. Beg God with me for those we know and love who need Christ to believe in Christ. If Calvinism ever motivates a lack of evangelism, Calvinism is fundamentally misunderstood. Paul's passion for his Jewish friends to come to Christ is interesting because he was called to do something else. Remember, well, just look across the page at Romans 11, verse 13. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's going to talk about the grafting in of Gentiles into the plan of God from from the Old Testament. We'll get to that in chapter 11. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am one who is sent, an apostle of the Gentiles. says the same thing in Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for Paul is a Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's interesting. He's to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. We saw that with, with Agrippa, with Felix, with Festus. He got to Rome and appealed to Caesar. He also was before the Gentiles. More Gentiles responded to Paul in the book of Acts than did Jews. And yet... The book of Acts does say he's also sent to the sons of Israel. The problem was he was primarily an an apostle to the Gentiles. And every single time and every single situation he goes in the city in Acts, he goes straight to the where? The synagogue and they, they, they beat him up and try to kill him for the gospel. You would think if he was constantly rejected by those whom he wanted to share Christ with, that he would give up. Not so. Heart's desire is that they come. And can I just say as, as a footnote, I, I, I really honestly think we should always take a look. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation is for everyone, but we should never neglect evangelism to our Jewish friends. If anyone ought to believe, it ought to be them from whom came the Christ, Romans 9 says. He never stopped thinking about, never stopped theologizing about the Jews and their dilemma of rejecting Christ. It was always on his mind. He was always thinking about it, talking about it, praying about it, teaching about it. And here in verse 2, he gives the specific account of his inspired conclusion about their rejection. Verse 2. For I teach, I testify about them, these Jews who have not believed, that they... What a description. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. What is this? What is he talking about? They have a zeal, but they don't, there's something they don't know. What do they not know? That's a direct result of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 6, 9 says, He said, go and tell this people, God telling Isaiah, tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. What? Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Otherwise means he wants them to do that. 
See, what's going on here? Why did God, think about this, God judged the nation of Israel by dulling their ears to the sound of his truth, by dimming their eyes to understand. Why? Because this is the final result after God had warned them and begged them and pleaded them and prophesied to them and sent them men and men and men over and over and over, generation after generation, to listen to what he is and listen to what he said. And, and they said, really, we'll make idols. We will tra transfer, we'll trade the truth of the living God for a little rock or wooden cow that we can put in our room. And after telling them over and over and warning them and prophesying to them and giving them opportunities to respond, they said, no, we will keep our idols and Yahweh God. He said, no. I'm going to dull your ears and dim your eyes. If that's not clear, remember the Lord Jesus. He goes by the fig tree, curses the fig tree, comes back the next day with his disciples. The fig tree is withered. And he said, this is a picture of, of Israel. Cursed because they didn't believe all the revelation that God had given them. But wait till chapter 11 because that curse will not last forever. The nation, nation of Israel will return and believe that Jesus is their Savior. What Paul was praying for is that in individuals that he loved and knew, that curse, that judgment, that prophecy would be reversed. That God would restore the knowledge that he had taken away from the dimming of their eyes and the dulling of their ears. He's praying their eyes and ears would be open to truth. What truth? The truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He is, verse 4, the goal, the end of their law. The Jews were, and dare I say we are, zealous for law-keeping, extraneous efforts that are damningly misinformed. They had not rejected Jesus because they'd looked at his claims and his person and done a thorough study of their Old Testament, their, their book, their, their law, their prophets, their writings. They stumbled over him because they were, they were blind. You ever tripped over something in the dark that you didn't see? Uh, about 20 years ago, 22 I think is what I figured out, I was with a youth group playing Capture the Flag and we were out in the woods. It was an epic game of capture the flag. And it was so much fun. And I was running full on, full out in a sprint in the middle of the woods. Hit a fallen tree. Over the fallen tree, tried to catch my balance and stepped into a hole. And my hip just entirely dislodged. And to this day, if I lean on it right, I can still feel the results of stepping wrong. I couldn't see. I couldn't see it. I was blind. Because I was blind, I stumbled over it. How could I have avoided that, that log? Play, capture the flag during the daylight. That would have helped. And I could have seen the log. Paul is saying, going back to the end of 9, they, they stumble, they're blind, they're deaf because they don't, they're not looking. If, here's a little point of a Jewish evangelism. If you can just get them to look at their own book, it speaks of Jesus. John 4.22 says this. 
Jesus himself. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. They should have understand that, understood that. You don't know what you don't know because you ought to know that salvation came from the Jews. Being born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, prophesying in Jerusalem, that's biblical. You should know this. But instead, they had a zeal for their own self-works righteousness to please God. And it wasn't just then, it extends on into this day. Not merely a Jewish problem, but there are some uniquenesses of the Jewish problem. A zeal for God, but not a passion for God's prescribed, prescribed way. Let me quote from you from Rabbi uh, Tzvi Hirsch Habner, who writes this. The Gemara, that's a component, it's, it's like a commentary on the Mishnah, so it's two steps removed from the law. The Mishnah and the Talmud come. The Talmud and the Mishnah comment on the law. This is a comment on the comments of the law of the Gemara. It says this: There are three types of nail cutters, fingernails, toenails. Righteous, pious, and evil nail cutters. I'm quoting: The righteous bury their nails. The pious burn them, and evil people just throw them down. And the Gemara goes on to explain that the problem with the nails being in a public place is that a pregnant woman may step on a finger or toenail and miscarry. And then there are pages of how that could happen. I'm not going to go into all that. It goes on at the end of this, uh, this comment to say this. Do not cut your nails on Thursday because they may sprout by the Sabbath. Do not cut your finger or toenails on the same day. Uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Hadahor recommends averting this problem by leaving one toenail always uncut until the next cycle. I don't, I'm not making this up. Only cut fingernails on Erev Shabbat, uh, the, the evening of the Sabbath, or, or Yom Tov, good days, holidays. There's enough of them to do that, by the way. And then there's lots more. The, the, the Rama, another Mishnah um, um, commentary says this. Do not cut your fingernails in order. One, two, three, four, five. The digits were numbered. Do not cut them in order. The order he gives is for the left hand, cut them in this order. Digit four, then two, then five, then three, then one. And for the left hand, digit, for the right hand rather, digit two, then four, then one, then three, then five. What? This is... If this wasn't so sad, we would put this in a comedy skit. Except, these folks believe that God is pleased by this. Give them credit. They believe God cares about every detail down to your cuticles. Is God holding a court in heaven with the angels within the Trinity... And saying, let's watch the fingernails and toenails of the Jews to see that they can please us. They're zealous though. Give them that. They are zealous. So is Paul. Philippians 3 verse 4. 
Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, ha, in their zealousness, me, I far more, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Can you imagine saying that? Find me one area where I disobey. I, I don't know that I know anybody who can say that. Paul, pretty self-righteous, said it before he met Christ. But do you have any sense of a self-defined way in your own heart? Do you have internal rules that you think God likes this, he doesn't like that? If I do this, he'll be, he'll be happy? You do. We all do. It's intuitive. I just embarrassingly did this two days ago. I was walking right out there and there was a, some cookie crumbs and I, I thought in the floor and, I, and I, I, I said, I ought to do this. God would want me to do this. Well, I mean, yes and no. It's good to clean up cookie crumbs, I think. But I got to be careful that I'm not thinking God's up there elbowing the angels. Did you see that? The cookie crumbs are not there anymore. Rick Holland, yay! Not at all. We have to be careful how we project our thinking about God on our own righteousness. And that leads perfectly into number two. This zeal without knowledge. You got to say knowledge of what? We're going to find out. They pursued works without faith. They didn't have any knowledge of faith in Christ, bottom line. Instead, they pursued works. This is picking up from what we learned in chapter 9. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to, look at this, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. By the way, what does Romans 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 tell us the righteousness of God is? It's the gospel. They didn't submit themselves to the righteousness of God righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. They decided to do their own and please God in their own way. Just like all of us do. Don't beat the Jews up for this. This is in all of our hearts. It's a review of Romans 2 and 3. It puts the central issue for us to consider and focus. The righteousness that we need and pursue. And again, Paul personally understood this. The same passage I was reading from earlier. Philippians 3 verse 8. He says... I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is the one who says, I've tried obedience to the law. I was blameless, but it was rubbish. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. All things there doesn't mean he lost his, his uh, walking cane. It means all things he considered righteous in the context he just said. I count all those things that I used to think made me special before God. I count them as rubbish so that I may gain not my own righteousness, that I may gain Christ. Listen to verse 9, Philippians 3. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's a summary of the whole book of Romans. 
Paul suggests that there are two reasons why so many of his Jewish kin did not find the righteousness they so zealously sought. What are the two reasons? They're right here. First, they determined to seek a righteousness of their own. I can be good enough. And typically, I can be good enough doesn't mean I can be good enough for God. It means I'm better than someone else and God will surely judge them instead of me. They were determined to find a righteousness in their own obedience. But secondly, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's an interesting way to phrase that. Submitting to God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven in Christ. There's where it is. It's Jesus. That's shorthand for the gospel and Jesus himself. The righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the gracious fact that righteousness is a gift of God's grace and they mistakenly believed they could earn their own righteousness by observing the law, the Torah. And that didn't work out so well, so, so much so that when they couldn't obey the laws that were revealed, they made up fingernail and toenail laws that they could obey so they'd feel better about themselves. That idea is going to come back in the coming weeks. And we come to verse 4. Verse 4 is one of those interesting words. It starts with, gar, starts with four. The Greek word is gar. And you'll also see that so does verse 5. These are both transitional verses. So let me just give you a heads up. I'm going to talk briefly about verse 4. Knowing that when we come back and study verses 4 to 13... We're going to talk about it again. So verse 4 is, is the completion of this one paragraph and the introduction to the second. It's a hinge verse. For Christ... Before we read verse 4, can I just tell you, this might be one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. You say, how can you say that? What do you say that? Because it brings together both the Old and the New Testament into one simple doctrine. Christ is the teleos, the end, or literally the goal. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, to who? Everyone who believes. Jesus, let me, let me kind of give you a, a, a paraphrase of that. Jesus Christ is the goal of the entire Old Testament which says that righteousness comes from God and you can attain that by believing in Him and His righteousness given to you by faith in the gospel. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? There's a lot of debate about that. Jesus answers that pretty seamlessly in Matthew 5.17 do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets he didn't come and when, when, when he shows up cross, burial, resurrection and then says push delete on Matthew through Malachi I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it he is the end. He's the goal of the whole Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writing. Paul says it's about Christ, not about legalism. He addresses legalism so many times. Trying to earn God's favor by works. Romans 3.20 and 3.27 to 31. Romans 4. 
1 to 8, Galatians 2, Ephesians 2, Philippians 3, 2 to 11, over and over. You cannot earn God's favor by your works and your own self-righteousness. But only when you understand that everything that was revealed in the Old Testament points toward Christ, points towards Jesus. He's the goal of it. Doug Moo provides this very helpful picture. He says this, quote, Perhaps the best way to answer the question, this question of what does the end of the law mean, is to go back to the imagery of a race that Paul has been using in this context. We might picture the law as the race itself and Christ is the finish line. But as Israel runs the race of the law, they should always, of course, have their eyes fixed on the finish line. Instead, though, Paul has been suggesting Israel concentrated so exclusively on the race, they forgot about the finish line. With the coming of Christ, that finish line has been reached, but Israel does not recognize it, end quote. Here we are again with Paul accenting the person of Christ. He, he is the gospel. The good news of God is a person. It's not just a plan. Remember Romans 1, the gospel of God, verse 1, verse 3, concerning his son. The good news of God concerns Jesus. Not works. Not religious exercises. Not good deeds, not social justice, but Christ. I want to confess to you that I, I share with, with your leaders, your teachers, your elders, and deacons, a similar burden that being a Bible teaching church, being a Bible church, we would be so in love with truth that we would miss Christ, that truth would be an, an abstract of beliefs we hold rather than the living Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us. That our faith would devolve into behavior modification, trying harder, moralism, rather than a love, passionate relationship with Jesus who's alive. Notice it doesn't say the gospel, moralism, Right, being right or being righteous says Christ is the goal of the law everything in God's revelation leads us to worship and understand Jesus better etched on this pulpit right here I'm looking at it right now sir we wish to see Jesus I guess the question all of us have to answer is do we wish to have Jesus shown that's what the Bible's for He's the goal of the law, which is very interesting. The law specifically is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and like Genesis has no law in it at all. It's talking about the revelation of God, who he is, ultimately finds its expression in Jesus. God has spoken in many portions and in many ways. There are prophets in all sorts of ways in the past. He used prophets. He used a donkey. He used a lot of means. In these last days, Hebrews 1 says, he has spoken to us How? In his son. It's the final word of God. The living incarnate word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made by the word. Verse 14. The word became 
flesh and dwelt among us. Paul is telling these Jews, if you want to get righteousness and acceptance by God right, you have to get it right, look at the last phrase, by believing in Christ. But that's not just exclusively for the Jews. It's for anyone who would want to be right with God. Do, Do you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe? Do you believe? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news that God became a man and died the death that we deserved, absorbing the wrath that God righteously and furiously should have poured out on us? He absorbed on our account by dying dead, heart stopped, breathing ceased on a cross, buried, three days rose from the grave. Well, do you believe that, that he did that for you instead of you trying harder and being better? That is good news. That's the best news. And it's not just for the Jews. I hope that's your heart. I hope that's your case. I hope you're not like me, running as hard as you can, not knowing where you're going, not knowing if you get there, and not knowing how to define your race. It's defined by Christ. Father, open our ears and unplug them to hear your truth. Open our eyes and help them to see without any dimming the light of the glory of who you are in the face of Christ. Make us as individuals, cause us to be as a church, men and women who are Jesus people, Christ lovers. Because Christ, who is our life, will be revealed to us. Oh, Father, make him our life. In Jesus' name, amen.